Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Hello, and welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Rich Barris co-founder and president of Highland Consulting Associates. Rich has a long and distinguished career in institutional investment consulting and has been a well-known figure in the Northeast Ohio investment community for quite some time. We talk with Rich about his journey from Akron to founding Highland. We dive into some of the changes he's seen in institutional investment consulting and how he balances business and family life and why it's important to Rich to do that. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Rich Veras. Rich, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. For sure, for sure. Well, hey, how about we start off with maybe just introduce yourself, and I think a lot of our listeners will likely know Highland Consulting Associates. So maybe just introduce yourself and just your firm, maybe like kind of an elevator pitch kind of summary just to get us started off. And you know, obviously, you have a, a long, distinguished career. So we'll jump into the rest of it then. All right. Thanks, Matt. Well, Highland is primarily an institutional investment consulting firm. This year is our 30th year. We're located on the west side of Cleveland in terms of our headquarters in Crocker Park. And we've been in Westlake the whole time. But we do business now with nearly a couple hundred clients in about a dozen states. So institutional investment consulting, and we have 30 people here. Right, right. Well, maybe just to rewind kind of far back, not to age it to our viewers, but you know, maybe talk a little about your upbringing. I'm not sure if you grew up in the Cleveland area, but we'd love to hear about kind of your zero to 18-year-old kind of years for the listeners. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I didn't grow up in Cleveland, but Akron. And at one point in time in my life, someone would mention Dallas-Fort Worth, and that would always seem to be the way they described by you know, folks in Texas. Well, Akron and Cleveland are closer together, but it felt like worlds away. You know, Akron was built around rubber tires and all that, Firestone, Goodyear, and so forth, and was the rubber city. And for some reason, you know, most of the kids that I grew up with, if we came to Cleveland, it was for a ball game to see the Indians play or something like that in the past. But my family, I have five siblings. We grew up in the South Akron area, Highland Park in Kenmore. You know, a lot of the folks that I grew up with, the parents were tire builders, just a great community post-World War II, a lot of families and kids to, uh, you know, we'd play in the streets. There weren't as many playgrounds at that point, but we were always playing games as kids. And most of us in that neighborhood would have attended the public schools. And so you know, I was in the Kenmore School District. And by the way, a little sideline, my grade school was Highland Park School. And that led to some thought around the idea of the name Highland. But there's some other thoughts along that way as well. But great place to be from and you know, great situation as a kid. 
any particular memories that stick out from your childhood where maybe you were first introduced to finance or investments, or did that come a little bit later in life? Frankly, Matt, a little bit later, but there was someone that was instrumental to some important degree. My ninth grade math teacher, Jerry Hirschman, Mr. Hirschman was just a kind gentleman, but just pulled me aside at one point and said the idea that say a strength or a skill or ability with mathematics, there's something that you could use here. And he wasn't precise, but he was encouraging the idea of pursuing something where you'd use some of your kind of innate abilities. And that was really helpful because not many people were saying things other than, could you catch a ball or run or whatever? That seemed to be the things you heard, at least I heard as a young boy, but that was very encouraging. And that was probably foundational, I'll say. For sure. Well, talk to us. You're in high school in Akron. Where did you end up going to college and what did you study? And maybe take us through your college years and maybe your immediate post-college years and what you did after school. Oh, sure. Thanks. Well, graduated undergraduate school from William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, but I'd only attended there the last two years of undergrad. Indirect path, obviously. I started at Ashland here in Ohio and was there my freshman year. And throughout that time, you know, I was a, I'll say this, maybe retracing a second. I was a gym rat and a sandlot rat kind of kid with my brothers and sisters. More my brothers, you know, my sisters tended to do other things for the most part. But I was really pursuing a place where I thought I could be, shall we say, a student athlete. And again, started at Ashland and then transferred to a junior college in Maryland for my sophomore year. The cool thing about that is I was able to do that with my brother, who he and I were the first two in our family to go to college full time. So we got to play together one more year. And then I went on to William & Mary and he went on to the College of Steubenville. But so I played basketball for four years at William & Mary. And then I'd say after that, the summer of 1981, I'll just insert this, played basketball with athletes in action in South America and Central America. And so there was you know, a time where athletics was a very major part of my life. And by the end of that summer, 1981, I think it was time to do something else. I wasn't going to make a living playing a game like that. And I came back to Ohio ultimately to start my work. Sure. Well, I can definitely identify with that as also being a former washed up meathead that found his way to finance. So definitely know that feeling. So yeah, talk to us a little about, you know, you come back to Cleveland after college and you're like, okay, what am I going to do with my life? What did your career look like then? Yeah. The first position that I ultimately took in post-college work life was a corporate banking training program position at Ameritrust. And so that was an excellent experience, you know, but it was physical spreadsheets and looking at, you know, financial statements and balance sheets and cash flow of businesses that their ability to repay loans. But as some listener might recall, yeah, the early 80s and those with a fixed income thought, you know, there's a tough interest rate environment, very high interest rates, high inflation, wasn't necessarily a lot of borrowers. But also with that program, I started in the fall of 82, started an MBA program at Case, and in just over two years, finished that. And by the end, fortunately for me at that time, someone else came calling and I started the position in January of 1985. And the requirement was an MBA. So the time at Case and the background at Ameritrust was very beneficial. A lot of great friends from there, even to this day, and even colleagues from that time. 
And what was the catalyst for going to get your MBA? I mean, I feel like many of us can identify maybe a point in our career where we're like, oh, do we go back to school or do we you know, take the CFA? What was your reason for going to get an MBA? Was it to change career paths or was it to build on what you had already had or what was the catalyst? More the latter, Matt. I mean, I felt like I needed to learn more. The time period in the early 80s and what the exact situations are in various organizations now obviously vary, but our employer was paying for the MBA. There were just time and effort. And so we were doing that at night and working very hard during the day and a busy time schedule. But the MBA was just a logical thing to do. Again, I felt like it was doubling down on what I needed to understand better. And I'll insert for the first time the plug for the CFA. It was just a few years after the MBA. I still felt like I needed more understanding in the finance and investment realm. And so I started the CFA without much encouragement in 1986. So it's just a maybe a love of learning and you know, it's something that was very necessary for me at the time. As someone who has both an MBA and a CFA, I know I and, and probably others have wrestled with, oh, do I do the CFA? Do I do the MBA? What's the pros and the cons to one of each? And as, as someone who has both and has hired people probably with both and one or not the other, how do you think about the CFA versus the MBA from a, hey, I'm, I've built a business, I've hired people with both, I have both. How do you think about the two? Well, we would say it's highly personalized. I mean, the idea that someone really needs one or the other or both. You know, when we talk with folks that have an undergraduate background and they're toying with an MBA, we don't discourage it, but we don't think of it as a requirement here. I mean, there are ways in which key elements of an MBA that we can help people with that join us, but we very much encourage the CFA. I mean, we think of it as a global standard for the background and investments, probably to an important degree, maybe the equivalent of an MBA in investments. may not give you the other management classes and the related things that some people want to be a part of or learn, but the CFA generally we would favor. We certainly don't disfavor an MBA, but it's not a requirement. So maybe talk to us a little about your career post-MBA. Where did you go? What jobs did you find? And how it maybe progressed kind of through to starting Highland eventually? Yeah, well, it was really kind of funny. I finished on my birthday in 1984. And the next day, I got three calls before 8 in the morning about a position at McDonald & Company in public finance of in terms of departments. And it was just someone that I knew very, you know, I just had a basic relationship with the person. Henry Zimmerman is the gentleman, but he just called me to say there was a position in public finance at McDonald and Company, and would you be interested? And as I got involved in the conversation, it was made known to me that an MBA was a requirement, but he didn't know I had just finished. And it turned out to be a perfect spot for me at the time. And so that was the middle of December, and I started January 5th. So in that, you call it holiday period, end of the year, within a few weeks, went through the interviewing process and started January 5th of 1985. And that was my beginning in investment banking in the public finance space. And that position lasted for about three and a half years, by the way, Matt. Felt it got pretty well blown up by the Tax Reform Act of 1986. And that was going to reduce the volume of transactions that you could do. But I had just a great time period there and had the 
pleasure and privilege of leading higher education finance for a few years in the public finance department. So it was doing deals and financing dormitories and student centers and things like that, institutions primarily in Ohio and in the region. A lot of cash flow analysis, did some cool things with defeasing some bond issuances and things like that. So it was a great opportunity, but then it started to wonder about the future of that position as we were in 1988 and then took a call from a headhunter at that point and got introduced to a global consulting firm at that point. And that was my introduction to consulting. How long did you work for that global consulting firm before going off on your own with Highland? Yeah, so I started with Hewitt Associates in 1988. It was about three and a half years with McDonald and Company. And Hewitt Associates is now owned by Aon. And I was the third consultant with Hewitt in Cleveland. And they hired me as a generalist. And I was just finishing the CFA at that point. But part of the attraction was the firm was still a partnership. They were decentralizing responsibilities and tasks. And I was very much hoping that I would be a part of the investment consulting group over time from the Cleveland office, but they weren't. It turns out as time passes, you have the recession of the late 80s, early 90s in the Gulf War. And so they started to retrace in some of their thinking And so I was going to be asked to move and move a young family to Chicago at that point. And instead, that started to get toward that thinking of maybe there's something we should do right here. So 1991 started that whole thought process and started to try to collaborate with some other people in a couple of firms. And frankly, that didn't go as smoothly as I would have liked it. And so it felt a little clumsy in a way, personally, you know, you're just trying to figure it out in terms of your work life and then said, uh, it felt like the only thing to do was to start something anew, do a from scratch startup. And that's when you have an insane thought, Matt, you know, do it from scratch startup. And so there we were by the end of 1993, Highland is incorporated in the fall and December 1st of 1993, we opened the doors. And and what did those first few years look like? Was it pretty sketchy trying to get those first clients? Or did you have a couple of clients that you knew that really helped you out in those beginning years? Well, first of all, you don't mind that I insert, I had met in that couple of years in between Hewitt and starting. I did meet a, a great colleague who we've worked together this whole time, Mark Williams. And got a great friend and colleague who he went through the CFA program. That was one of our urgings right out of the gate and just a a fun time. But you use the word sketchy. I had a picture in my mind back then and at times when we'd talk about it, even in the the 90s. And then now I confess this, I looked to see what this movie actually was about. I remember the title. So I'll share it. It It's called Three Men and a Baby. And by the way, the third man was Bill Kendi. He came from Centurior Energy, And he was responsible for their pensions and their foundation and their nuclear decommissioning assets. And he took early retirement from there. So it was the three of us trying to get the firm started. And there was no manual, you know, a consulting firm and the technology. We're trying to get data and we're trying to do things. And at times we're trying to maybe that we would grow the firm in a particular way in terms of the people. But we had some principles that we were operating under being a client's advocate, fee only, transparency and so forth. So that was something that we really were excited about. And we were 
telling people about and uh, use the term selling, communicating, conveying that message. And fortunately, there were some people buying it. And truly, no client came with us at the beginning. There were some folks who said, hey, if you start a firm, we would consider doing this. For some reason, that didn't work out. But it really caused us to have a lot of discipline to go out and provide a message to the marketplace that we could help. And we wanted to help investors manage risk and fiduciary duty and so forth with their retirement plans and other type of institutional investors. And thankfully, it worked. One thing that did work was the market cooperated and the market cooperated. You may not remember this, but you may, Matt, but 1994 for a consultant was a good year. The S&P was barely positive and it was basically due to dividends, right? You know, yield on stocks because stock prices generally were negative and the bond market was negative. And when investors have poor years, even institutional investors of any type, that's more often the likely time that they're going to seek advice. And so like 1994 was a gift. And so early in the 1995, we were much more successful. They're just a little bit more momentum in terms of people interested in talking to us about what we were doing. And thankfully, a year like that occurred early on. Was there a moment, maybe it was that year where it was like, oh, oh my gosh, like this firm is going to work and we have something here. Was there a moment you remember where you had that thought? Now, this is a personal note. I didn't necessarily expect to talk about this, but in the middle of that, in the startup period and just trying to develop a level of profitability, we find out that we're pregnant. My wife, Beth, and I, you know, I met at William & Mary. She tells me we're pregnant. It would be our fourth child. But then soon after we find out it's twins. So <laughs> we're in that startup phase. And that was a very faith growing stretching time. I mean, that was an incredible period. And she felt the the stress of it all. But it was remarkable. There was a time where you're just saying, you're really trying to do the right thing. And, you know, I'd say this, God gave me some peace about that, Matt. You know, you're like, you have that moment where what are you committed to? And it was quite cool because soon after that, we started to have a profitable number of quarters and the, the firm was off and running, and that was quite cool. And thankfully, our twins are fraternal girls. They're 27 years old today and delightful young ladies. <laughs> that was a time when, oh my, felt like the pressure was on. And Bill and Mark were great through all that. And then one of my Ameritrust colleagues, Kelly O'Hara, joined us. And so we just had a great uh, starting period. But we were grinding and working hard and long hours and all the things that startups do. That's a great story. I mean, we're at different stages of life. I'm probably closer to your kids' age than you for the viewers that don't know us both. But I can definitely identify and have you know friends that have those little positive surprises that can throw a little curveball at you that, I mean, hindsight 2020, I'm sure it's a fond moment to look back on for you and your personal life and your business life. And the beauty of life as it goes on, you know, two of our colleagues in the last few weeks have had babies, you know, it's just cool. Yeah, life goes on and we've got exciting work to do, but other exciting things happen in our life as we go. How did you balance? I mean, it sounds like you have a big family and five kids. How did you balance owning and running a business with the family life for all those years? Well, it took time. I didn't elaborate on this with my McDonald period, but I was terribly out of balance in that period. I was addicted to adrenaline in work, had some 80, 90, 100 hour weeks, and you know it was unhealthy. Fortunately, I had a lovely wife who said, this isn't working. And we had some really good conversations at that point that probably helped that conversation to think about a Hewitt Associates experience. That was really good for me. But once we got into Highland, 
and as a group. And anyone who's been in a startup or anyone who's been in a business that's newer and you're trying to get your legs, there's always more to do. I mean, there's always more that you could stay up all day and night, but you are going to, it's like being an athlete or being at any place in your life where you know you have to have periods of recovery. And today in the firm, we talk about having clarity breaks and we do things that, you know, you're really having times to clear your head, to think, or encouraging people to take vacation to that in, in that period. One of the reasons that we're on the West Side, it was very practical. It was near all of our homes, the founders and that, and it was near us. So a home was just a few miles away. The kids' schools were just a few miles away. Incredibly beneficial. And we could do some things, work a little bit at night. So if there was an event or a concert or a game or something that they were involved in, did all those things and tried to stay close. The other thing is a lot of our work and practice, consulting practice today, was built around day trips. Often we were sleeping in our own bed, you know, not in a hotel, not on a plane all the time. We have a little bit more travel now, but we try to think of that from the standpoint of having a life and clients understand that, but they also know we need to be committed to service in terms of our consulting work. But it's never easy. It requires some discipline and it requires some intentionality. But we're going to stretch some that I use the term sacrifice at times and you go the extra mile for clients. That's a given in work life. But the same thing, you should stretch a little bit and go the extra mile for your spouse and your kids. And we think very much that way and always have. Talk to us a little about you know Highland as it was growing from you know the mid-90s to maybe even up to today. So what's Highland's kind of niche and what kind of part of the market have you guys had a lot of success in and maybe other parts of the market that are still growing or you're still kind of maybe a little bit newer to? I'd love to hear a little about kind of how the business grew and what parts of the market it, it really grew in. Yes. Well, thanks. Well, in the early 90s, the natural place to go was in the retirement plan space. Part of it is the information's readily available due to public filings and so forth. So you could get information, at least know where assets were, and then could start to talk to organizations about their needs. So and the area that was growing was the 401k retirement plan space. But again, it was, I almost say it was in its infant stage, it, you know, the supporting regulations of that had been passed years before. And ERISA passed 20 years earlier before our founding, but it was this idea of fiduciary duty and ways in which to look at plans and really optimize them for participants and for the benefit of participants and their beneficiaries. So we were in that retirement plan space and then we were going to daily valuation. When I was at Hewitt, you know, Hewitt was the largest record keeper of defined contribution plans at that point, but mainly they were balanced forward. They weren't daily valued. You were only valued you know, once or twice a year and that's really what you saw if you saw anything at all, or you just got a, an annual statement. Well, Fidelity and Bankers Trust became the big disruptors where they were doing daily valuation plans. And with mutual funds, this became an important era in the business. And we were pretty good at understanding how that could be beneficial to provide the type of analysis and information and review of plans to benefit people. And one thing, and I thought of this even this morning, it was in about 94, and a paper and a name familiar to everybody that says a CFA is going to know William Sharp, you know, a Sharp ratio 
Well, Sharp had done a paper, which wasn't widely published. I think it was in the Journal of Portfolio Management on statistical style analysis. And we had a tool to look at statistical style analysis in mutual funds that we were using in 94, 95. And we had it, and I won't mention the fund group, they're still active and successful today, but they were known for growth stock management. And you looked at this growth fund and we did the statistical style analysis on the fund and it showed essentially they were investing in Japanese industrials. We call them and we want to talk to the management team and say, this is what we understand. And they said, how do you know that? And who are you? Because we aren't <laughs> we aren't really on the radar screen on anybody's radar screen. But it was one of those tools early on that was really, really helpful. So we're doing this work in the DC space, and that becomes something that is very, very helpful to us. But as you know, as you go through the 90s, you're leading up to the tech boom and bust. And it seemed like Anybody, everybody could make money in that period. And just as I mentioned, 1994, not many people feel like they need help when all it feels like is the wind is at your back and markets just continue to go up. But we did have organic growth. It was very beneficial to us. As I said, we got to that net positive state, but it was some of the work that we were doing by the end of 99, first quarter 2000 saying, you know, we use these valuations are ridiculous. And obviously history, it's very, very clear, even to the some of the more recent period. But by the end of 99 and uh, into 2000, we just said, this doesn't look like it's going to end well. And we're warning clients and we're talking to prospects about it too. And we're not prognosticators, but there's a logical idea Stocks don't, you know, the trees don't grow to the sky. What do you say? What's the term? You know, don't talk about folks with price to sales ratios now, even profitable businesses, you know, of 40 plus times. And you know who I'm referring to, right? I mean, we're just in a crazy period again in some respects, but that was the time period. And we're providing advice and communicating that to prospective clients. And that proved very helpful, Matt. Yeah. Not to get into your prognostications, but does it feel a little bit like that right now? Or has it felt like that for a couple of years, like it did in the late 90s? Or how do you see the two time periods compare and contrasting? They're similar. The one phrase that many in our industry and good people in our industry would say, the markets don't exactly repeat themselves, but where they quote Twain or somebody, but they rhyme. So over the various years, I mean, we've looked at periods like these last several months and couple of quarters where we've looked at inflationary periods. We're looking at things that, what can it tell us? The one thing that's difficult is, and it's helpful too, is product proliferation. A lot of products that now are available today and strategies that are available today weren't available in that period. So you're trying to figure out how to make application to meet client needs in this environment. But there's some similarities and obviously there are some differences, but it's still instructive and it helps frame ways to think about managing a portfolio, managing, helping clients understand, manage risk, meet requirements of whatever you're trying to fund. So we are trying to use those historical perspectives. And again, yeah, there's some similarities. The concentration is super high, as you know, in terms of what's contributing top 10 performers and so forth. You've had such a, a long and distinguished career in the institutional consulting space. 
How has that space changed right now relative to when you started? I mean, obviously, we talk about defined contribution plans and you know, even just in your comments there, you can tell some of the differences. But if somebody asks you kind of the open-ended question, how is the space different from when you started? How would you answer that? Well, it'd be almost, Matt, introducing AI or big data or, you know, there's so much information available. You know, 30 years ago, it was great. We had to work very, very hard to get data. You had to have tools, computing power to utilize that data. You had to find ways to communicate and produce things that were useful to clients. A lot of that's readily available today or more readily available and becoming more readily available. It's still, how do you turn it into the strategy, what do you rely upon, what's trustworthy, those things are still a part of what we're doing and helping people with. We said this, and I'll quote, or at least paraphrase something that we would have said 30 years ago, you know, we would have, say, 3,000 products in our database, which was a pretty significant, uh, I don't want to say it was totally exhaustive, but it was a very good database at that time where there are hundreds of thousands of products now that are out there. You look at that sort of information, you say, what, what are you going to do with it? And say facetiously, and not everybody can be the best, but in a marketing sales and otherwise, someone's going to say, we're the best for you, Matt. And who helps you do that? Well, we've always been trying to, in a figurative and literal sense, breaking apart some of these great product providers of all types and excellent firms, and they are needed, very much needed in the industry, but who helps on the client side? And it's not that that manager doesn't help. They provide a most important and useful input, but we're trying to be that advocate for the client on that side in terms of strategy and analysis and comparison and so forth. So that part is similar. It's just that things have continued to grow, complexity, and though the information to the client is much more significant, they can access it. We've got to be very helpful in, in the role that we play. Where do you think the retirement plan industry is going in the next five, 10 years? What are the things that you and you know, the people around you see that like, wow, this is a trend. This is going to this is going to really change things and change maybe how the industry does business. Any thoughts there? Who do I quote on this one? I feel like it could be attributed to several people, but what's the world that we're in? Well, we're in the developed world and the developed world is facing deficits, demographic issues. You know, they're instead of growing portfolios, hopefully portfolios will continue to grow, right? But you're going to have more and more distributions based upon our demographic and most of the developed world. It's going to have a huge impact on how we think about it. And you're going to have people living with what we would want to show them is the great work that you, know, you and your firm and people who are in our community are doing and continue to do to fund those needs. You know, so they're going to be strategies. I mean, the retirement plan field's already talking and there's um, ways in which we can see perhaps some annuitization in more annuitization. There may be some more, I'll call it institutionalization of the annuity product to person coming out of a retirement plan, which could be helpful. There are things that I, I think we could predict, and there are some things I don't want to predict because I don't think they would be good, but they could sound good to people. And I mean, people would like to just solve this and provide a guaranteed income forever. I'm going to stop there because I think we know where that could go. And there's some challenges to that 
in governmental systems and insurance systems as well or annuitization. Sure, sure. Turning a little bit more to the personal side, and I'll, I'll tell you that you know when we started this podcast and trying to get guests on and whatnot, I feel like your name has probably come up more than most as far as who we should have on the podcast. So you're a well-known and obviously well-liked person in the community and have been around for a little while. What's next for you on a personal front? Are you one of those people that wants to continue working? It's what you love doing? Or at some point, is there a, a winding back of maybe the professional life and focusing on personal more? What's in the next 5, 10 years for you? Oh, thanks, man. That was very kind. I don't believe in retirement, but that doesn't mean that I believe in being here at Highland forever. When we started the firm, we did start the firm with the idea of this client centricity and the idea that the client needs to win. But we also said that we want the firm to be sustainable. We want it to be a firm. And the ownership of the firm is always intended to be, and the plan is to be that those who are providing the consulting services well in the firm. So that process is underway. And we started it about seven years ago on the one end. And from an ownership standpoint, we started it more than 10 years ago in terms of an ESOP. So that's occurring. But in terms of the rich part, if my responsibility is revalued, if there's some things that I could continue to do, there's going to be some involvement for the next few years, but it'll become less significant and appropriately so. And the leadership team here is doing a great job in terms of that transition. But if I use, say, the kind of threes and say the three things that are really important to me are faith and family and finance. So a little bit more waiting on my family and finance as we go and my wife, who's we've been married 40 years now. So it's been wonderful to be together. But and there are some things here locally within Cleveland. Uh, I've been working with a foundation, any leadership foundation. The whole purpose is to give back and try to make a difference here within Cleveland and help people in ways that really make a difference. So, and it, there's a finance part and other things working with In a Steps Foundation and some other groups that we're just trying to give back in meaningful ways and feel that that's been Highland forever. And now are people doing some things that want to give back to the community? You know, Cleveland, Greater Cleveland has been very good to us. Well, thanks for sharing that and best of luck to you with the personal side of that. I think we've reached the point in the podcast that a little bit of a, a lightning round, rapid fire, kind of more lighthearted questions. Is that something you're willing to participate in? Well, we'll give it a go, Matt. All right. First question. Do you have a nickname? Maybe the only nickname that's ever stuck is RV. RV. Okay. I like it. Yeah. What's your favorite hobby outside of work? Well, I'd say it's more family-related things, but activities, and, you know, no one would say I'm a golfer. I do like to get the kayak out on the lake when I can in the summer, you know, on Lake Erie, but I'm not running anymore. I'm not shooting hoops anymore. I'm more walking and sometimes biking and kayaking would be probably those things. Sure. Probably a little easier on your knees. Yes. A little wear and tear. <laughs> Less wear and tear now, yeah, with that. <laughs> Do you like to cook? And if so, what's your favorite recipe to cook? Well, no one would call me a cook, but I would say probably grilling, you know, the simple things out on the grill or a breakfast omelet. You know, I, I do tend to do weekend breakfast, even now for my wife and me. Sure. Favorite investing or finance book? And you only you got to pick one. One? Okay. I would tell you that just an investing book, I would still say investment policy, Charlie Ellis, but the book that relates to us or what we do 
is one that most people probably don't know. It's called Money Masters, and the author was John Train. And so he's covering managers. Read that, you know, leading into Highland. So it was very helpful. What profession would you be in if you weren't doing what you're doing right now? Well, I'm too old to be trying to shoot threes right now, Matt. And when I played, they didn't have a three line. I'd probably say coach and teach. Still love being around and kind of an educational, informative sort of field. What's at the top of your travel list as far as destinations that you haven't been to yet? Well, I owe my wife, Beth, trip to Bermuda. And so that is on the top of the list, I'd say. We also want to do a trip around the Great Lakes, probably do that by car and just kind of you know stop as we go and have a, a good time. But, but Bermuda is very top of the list. Any hidden talents? No. <laughs> <laughs> no way. I, nothing. That, uh, there's very little to hide, by the way. That's fair. I feel like, you know, this is a finance investment focused podcast. So there haven't been many when I've asked that question. And I wonder if it's just the clientele, which I would put my part of. It's maybe a little more simple. Dare I use the word a little bit more boring that doesn't have some interesting hidden talents. So maybe if we're in a more creative field, I could get more out of people. But again, I, I'm including myself in that one because I don't have any. <laughs> and Matt, I would tell you, I'm thankful I was introduced to stringed instruments in school, you know, back in high school. I've played bass file, string bass through. And that was very, very fun. But I'll say it lost out to other things, right? But gave that up as a teenager. But I always like string instruments and our kids are all string players for the most part. Sure. Office or remote, which one do you prefer? Office. Favorite lunch spot in Cleveland? Well, I'm going to give a historic lunch spot, if that's all right. Sure. After working up a good sweat in the gym at the Cleveland Athletic Club, we'd go to the diner counter and Frank would serve us if we gave the order the right way. So we missed those Cleveland Athletic Club days over on Euclid. That was a special time. That was a special lunch place too. Sure, sure. What's a hidden gem in Cleveland that you think more people should go to that they don't currently? It could be food or, or, or otherwise. Well, Ohio City Provisions. There's probably going to be some folks that know that one, but Ohio City Provisions is great. We usually get our turkey there. It's good to get hot dogs there on opening day, but they locally source Ohio and local food. And it's a pretty neat place. Introduced to it by my daughter and son-in-law, who are big foodies. Cool. Not that I'm the foremost expert, but it sounds like a cool place. And I, I had no idea what it was. So maybe I'll put that on my list too. Yeah. Favorite Metro Park? Huntington. We live in Bay Village. And so it's right there. We'll walk up to the lake a lot and, or walk through the area very often. But the whole emerald necklace is, is a gem, as you know. Sure. What show are you watching right now? Or what book are you reading? Or both? I'll do the one that my wife and I, it's our go-to, Main Cabin Masters. That's a show? Yeah, it's a great show on just renovating cabins and camps in Maine. And we've had a great trip, Maine, a few years back and uh, brings back terrific memories. And for some reason, they always seem to do the renovation for about 10% of the price that we would try to do that here. <laughs> it's funny. But cool places in Maine. Cool. All right. We'll turn to the last couple of questions. Where were you when this Cleveland sports moment happened? So you're a basketball guy. So where were you when the Cavs won the NBA title a few years back? We were in our family room in Bay Village, and it's amazing how the emotion goes, Matt. Really was setting myself up to just say, hey, they don't win this. 
it just is. I just was amazed at how it felt when they closed it out. And my kids make fun of me because we get a text or one of them gets a text and says, Dick's Sporting Goods right here in Crocker Park, a couple miles from the house. Dick's Sporting Goods is open right after the game to get your gear, you know, your championship gear. And I did say in a pretty excited voice, we're going to Dick's. (laughs) (laughs) And we did. We did and got in the line and just had a ball just picking out the shirts and all of the stuff that we should wear to be proud that the Cavs had brought home a championship to Cleveland. Fun. Where did you watch the Guardians lose the World Series? Left field. Oh. A good friend, neighbor, huge basketball fan, had two tickets, and his wife didn't want to go to the last game. And it just worked out that when he says, Rich, you mind? You want to go? I said, sure, Ray. And so there we were. We were looking at that home run by Davis. And just really shouting, say, stay fair, because, you know, the angle and we're seeing it turn. And yeah, we're right there with that home run. The coolest part of that, Matt, was to watch the Cubs fans melt. (laughs) They thought the curse was on. Sure. You know, that was pretty funny. But then it ended up playing against us, as you know, didn't go our way. And but that was very exciting. That was just a cool, cool play to be there and to see it and cheer and That was a cool series, but just short end of the stick, as you know. Where were you when Michael Jordan hit the shot over Craig Elo? I think that was 1992. Do you remember where you were then? I'm sure I was at home. I was watching it, and I was very, very disappointed, obviously. Sorry, cheap aside, I played against North Carolina and just a a year too old to play against Jordan. So we played, you know, they had Worthy and Perkins in that group. And so his teammates that played, you know, against them. And so, yeah, it was imagining the idea of trying to be in a place where you could make a difference on that shot. And obviously he's just incredible and (laughs) proved that time and time again. But yeah, that was the dagger. Where were you when you learned that the Browns were moving to Baltimore? I don't remember that, but boy, that was really, I can't even describe how frustrating that is. Well, this was a, finance economics thing. If they want you to pay for a seat license, Matt, do you want some form of guarantee that you're going to have a tenant? Yes. Right? Right? That's kind of the finance. You're managing some of the risk of that relationship, right? Oh, my. And it's hard to imagine how the models were and what they wanted to do and felt they needed to do. And you see some of these teams that just go back and forth from towns on the West Coast that we know are from the West Coast of St. Louis, right? Super frustrating and glad a team is back here. Glad they were able to still be the Browns. That's still positive. Sure. Let's hope they have a good season. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's do. (laughs) I'm a transplant, but I am a Browns fan and I'm hoping this year is a good year. But I feel like now is peak expectations time where everyone thinks their team's going to do well. And I'm a football guy, so fall is exciting. Yeah, I think I was aware of that, Matt, that you're a football guy too. And I love football. I think it's a great sport. Again, I hope the team is great. I hope they have a great year. Likewise. Well, Rich, that's all the lightning round questions I have. Thanks for joining the podcast. It was really fun talking and hopefully we'll see you at a CFA event in the near future. All right. Thank you, Matt. Enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland 
attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.